You're listening to the Bowman of the Yard podcast. Exhibit I. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> it always makes me laugh. I don't know quite why, but it's just the same thing, isn't it? Uh, welcome to the Bowman of the Yard podcast. It's the 1st of September, which means it must be Exhibit I. And how are you, Peter Crouch? I am very well, Richard James. How are you? Yeah, I'm not doing too badly at all. Um, all well since we last met? Very well, yes, yes. Thriving, as much as you can be in the current circumstances. Exactly right. And I hope you at home are also doing well. Uh, now, Peter, if you were to reach over, do you see the um, bookcase right behind you there? Oh, yep, yep. If you were to take a look at the um, one, two, three, fourth row down, oh. the second book on the left, just give that a pull and you'll see that a secret door opens. Oh, goodness me. Now, so you see the steps down to the cellar there? Oh, it looks very creepy down there. Yeah, well, d- don't worry, just trust me. Okay. And at the bottom, you down there? I am, yes, can you hear me? Okay, yes. Can you see the safe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I see it. Okay, so the uh, the combination number is 7341. Oh, just a minute. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Right, now, you got that piece of paper? Open, yeah, open the door, oh. a piece of paper in there. Yeah. Okay, got right, it. so come back up, and uh, now... <sighs> All right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Take a breather. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm all right. Now, if you were to uh, just open that piece of paper, yes, and you should see a list of things coming up in this podcast. Well, goodness me, would you believe there. it? We've got all the latest news coming up. Yes, we have. We've got letters to the yard. Mm-hmm. We've got our author in the cells at Bow Street this month. It's Stephen Veerappen. Right. And finally, we hear the concluding part of the Smithfield murder. Yes, and it's about time too, isn't it, really? It really is. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm, I'm eager to hit, find out what happens. <laughs> Although I have read it, so I do know. That's true, exactly. And I haven't changed it since you read it either. Uh, now, Stephen Veerapen, Veerapen, Veerharpen. I've been having lots of conversations with him on Twitter on how exactly to pronounce his surname. But I thought you gave it a good stab there, Peter. So we'll be hearing from him in the cells at Bow Street a little later on. But shall we head straight into some Bowman of the Yard news? Oh, yes, please. Extra, extra! Read all about it! Now, if you have yet to dive into the world of Bowman of the Yard, you might be interested to hear that the first three novels are now available as an e-book omnibus. That's all three novels in one handy ebook omnibus for the princely sum of £4.99 if you're in the UK uh, or $5.99 if you're in the US. And I'm pretty sure it's available in some other territories as well. So, Peter, can you name me the first three novels in the Bowman of the Yard series? The Head in the Ice. Mm-hmm. The Devil in the Dock. Very good. And The Body in the Trees. Excellent. And it will be joined, as we know... Uh, by a fourth and final book in this particular sequence, uh, well, next month, uh, middle of October, hopefully. So I'm guessing that fourth book will then be added to the omnibus. But if you haven't started reading the Bowman of the Yard series yet, perhaps now is a good time to join in. Definitely. Now, I posted an excerpt from the first chapter of the next book, the forthcoming novel, on uh, the Bowman of the Yard Facebook page. That's uh, facebook.com forward slash Bowman of the Yard. Uh, It was about a 10 minute excerpt from the very first chapter where the body is discovered in the printing works uh, owned by Gibson and Son in Ludgate Circus. Rather spooky, if I do say so myself. And I had a few comments underneath. Gary Hodgkinson, for example, says, yet another mystery to look forward to. Rob Doyle says, sounds great. And Roger Smith said, can you give us a heads up so we can pre-order? 
Absolutely, Roger. I'll certainly do that. So look out for information on how and where to pre-order, if indeed it is available to pre-order, sometime around the beginning of October. Now, finally, for now, Peter, have you heard of Springheeled Jack? I've heard the name, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. Prob- I probably couldn't tell you much about it. Well, there is a rather famous Jack in the uh, in Victorian history, isn't there? Jack the Ripper, of course, who uh, spreads a very large shadow over the Scotland Yard investigations of the 1880s. Uh, but there was another Jack who was around uh, for quite a bit longer, almost the entire length of Victoria's reign, in fact. He was first encountered in the 1830s, and he was last met in 1904 in Liverpool. Now, Springheel Jack was almost a sort of a phantom-like figure, and uh, he sort of his mythology grew with each appearance. And it was said uh, that he breathed fire, had blazing eyes, and could leap buildings as he made his escape. Hence the name Spring Heeled Jack. Ah. Now no one knows if he actually ever existed. Uh, some people say it was a, an example of mass hysteria. Um, some people say it was a prankster, or whole generations of pranksters who were dressing up and sort of playing this role for the odd seventy years that he was around. He generally tended to prey on young women. Uh, in one case at least frightening them to death with his conduct. Uh, I've written a blog post about his exploits. As someone very like Springfield Jack appears in the next novel, I thought it might be a nice way of introducing his mythology to you if you haven't heard of him before. And again, Joanne Bennett commented, nice article, it always seems like Springfield Jack seems to get forgotten about in favour of another, more infamous Jack. Yeah. Interesting. So head on over to bowmanoftheyard.co.uk slash blog and you can read all about it there. That's it for this month. I think it's time we heard some Letters to the Yard. Letters to the Yard. Well, we have a letter from our good friend Duncan Wilson and he's listened to the first chapter of book four and he says, what a cracking opener. Love the added sound and music, really added to the atmosphere. Temperance Snell, what a fantastic name. And thank you for including The Black Friar, one of my favourite London pubs. I'm excited to see what lies ahead, especially for Bowman himself. Ah, yes, thank you, Duncan. Yes, I love a Victorian pub, don't you, Peter? Oh, absolutely. The Silver Cross. And of course, there were plenty of them back in the day. Lots of uh, drinking establishments, gin houses, chop houses, public houses. They really did like a drink, the Victorians. Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah, that's fair enough. As to what's in store for Bowman himself, well, I'm going to give you a little bit of an exclusive. Um, The fourth book sees Inspector Bowman in Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, as we might expect following the events at the end of The Body in the Trees. But we also flash back ten years to see him in the service of his old superior, Detective Inspector Simeon Granger, when Bowman is a mere detective sergeant, and he discovers that the case that he investigated 10 years ago might have some bearing on the murders taking place in his present day. And Richard, when might we know the title of book four? When I thought of it. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, now I've got a couple of ideas. Um, I think I've settled with one, but I think I might wait until the cover reveal as well, which will be sometime in early October. Uh, and that'll be a nice surprise for everybody. Fantastic. Now, Chris Shin tweeted to say that he'd just finished the Bowman trilogy and downloaded the casebook and found them a very enjoyable read. Thank you very much, Chris. So a word about Bowman's casebook. This is a collection of the first four short stories. That's The Smithfield Murder, The Hackney Poisoning, The Hampstead Garrotting, and The Hoban Strangler. They have been collected together uh, in a compendium 
under the umbrella title of City of Death. That's the first four short stories. Now, the next four short stories, because there will be eight in all, will be released later in the year, hopefully before Christmas, so there's a little something for your stocking, and that will be collected under the title of City of Fear. Do you see what I've done there? I do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, of course, do remember that if you're a little bit short of the old pennies, you can pop along to bowmanofyard.co.uk, where you can download every single short story, and there are six of them so far, for free. That's very generous of you, Richard. Quite all right. It's the least I can do. Now, we've also got a letter from John. He says, Hi, Richard. Shame on me. I went and bought a Kobo e-reader, so I cannot get Kindle. Sorry to miss yet another great-sounding book. Yours in friendship, John. Oh, John. Well, I'm sorry to lose you. Yes, well, that's just a shame, isn't it? Unfortunately, my books are exclusive to Amazon, so you can either get it for your Kindle, or if you are subscribed to Kindle Unlimited, you can get it for free, or as part of your subscription. But of course, there is another way of getting hold of my books, John. You can always get the paperback. Uh, some people uh, prefer that, to see them lined up on their shelf. I certainly do. So you can still get the paperback and uh, let us know what you think if you do. Finally for now, I have one here from Cora, who says, Hello! Uh, I'm halfway through the third Bowman book, and I've read them all in a week. Wow. Please tell me there'll be some light at the end of the tunnel for Bowman. I'm just at the bit where Graves had to knock him up to go to the police station, as he'd got sozzled on Madeira. I have every sympathy, but it's getting on my nerves now, and I wanted to get some help. After this book, I think it's just the short stories, then I'm waiting for you to write another. Oh, all right, Cora, all right. Well, you know, I'm going as quickly as I can. <laughs> the fourth book will be out. Is there light at the end of the tunnel for Bowman? Well, of course there is. I mean, there has to be, doesn't there? I don't want to leave uh, leave my uh, readership on a, on, a, on a downward beat at the end of the series. So, yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I would say he ends up uh, perhaps exactly where you might want him to be, but he certainly ends up in a good place. Interesting. Don't forget, you can send in your questions to podcast at bowmanoftheyard.co.uk or you can comment on our Facebook page. That's uh, facebook.com forward slash bowmanoftheyard. Now, over the last nine months, Peter, we picked up listeners and hopefully readers in the UK, US, uh, Australia, Canada, Ireland, um, New Zealand, France, Denmark, Spain, the Netherlands, Germany, uh, Argentina, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Poland, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Sweden and the United Arab Emirates. Phew. I think that's just about every continent represented except Antarctica. So come on, you penguins, pull out those fingers and get listening. (laughs) Now, the best thing you can do for me is to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd be so kind to leave us a nice review and share us with your friends, that would be great. All for now. Don't forget to comment or send in your reviews and uh, thoughts, and uh, we'll read them out next time. Indeed. Well, having heard from our listeners, Peter, I think it's about time we heard from our sponsors. Lovely women. Why will you tolerate freckles, pimples, blackheads, yellow or muddy skin, moth wrinkles, red nose or any other form of skin disease or facial disfigurements when you can certainly possess a beautiful form, brilliant eyes, skin of pearly whiteness, perfect health and life well worth living if you will only use Dr. Amit's French arsenic complexion wafers, perfectly harmless and the only genuine safe French preparation of arsenic. 20 years success. The only really certain means of growing a beard hitherto discovered is the use of Professor Modevi's Beard Generator. Success guaranteed after four to six weeks use, even by young men not above 17 years of age. Perfectly harmless for the skin. A five shilling bottle or double sized eight shilling bottle sent directly on receipt of postal order or stands for the amount. The curves of youth will be yours if you pull the cords. Professor Max Chin Reducer and Beautifier. 
gives the flesh the resiliency and freshness of youth, prevents double chins, reduces enlarged glands. The only mechanism producing a concentrated, continuous massage of the chin and neck, dispelling flabbiness of the neck and throat, restoring a rounded contour to thin, scrawny necks and faces, bringing a natural, healthy colour to the cheeks. Price, only £10. What better investment could be made? I think I'd like to see the professor and his beard generator appearing in one of the Bowman stories. <laughs> yeah, it's quite tempting, isn't it? What's so fascinating about all these absolutely genuine uh, Victorian and, I have to say, Edwardian advertisements is that a lot of them are about physical appearance, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I suppose nothing much has changed in a way. On a similar note, I did see that Dan Snow um, had tweeted that today in 1897, 11 days after he first synthesised aspirin, Felix Hoffman invented heroin. Bayer would market it as a cough syrup for children. Is it still available now? Well, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but again, I love this idea that this, this narcotic and these opiates were, were distilled down to use for sort of toothache tablets and calming sweets to send children off to sleep. Wow. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Now, having heard from our sponsors, I think it's about time then that we headed over to the cells at Bow Street to see who we've got locked up this month. Stephen Virapen was born in Glasgow and raised in Paisley. Pursuing an interest in the 16th century, he was awarded a first-class honours degree in English, focusing his dissertation on representations of Henry VIII's six wives. He then received a Master's in Renaissance Studies and a PhD investigating Elizabethan slander. Stephen's fascinated by the glamour and ghastliness of life in the 1500s, well, so he'll be quite at home in the cells then, and has a penchant for myths, mysteries and murders in an age in which the law was as slippery as those who defied it. So let's head on over to Bow Street and hear from Stephen. You're nicked. Ah, there's nothing quite like the rustic splendour of a Victorian prison. Exposed brick, dripping walls, loose pipework, the distant cries of the damned. And is that just a hint of weak old urine? Glorious. Thanks, Richard. You always put people up in the nicest places. I shouldn't really complain. The protagonist of my latest series of novels, Ned Savage, has been banged up and worse. At the start of Succession, published this year by Sharp Books, he finds himself in an Elizabethan jail, locked up for a crime that today wouldn't be a crime at all. Now, jails under Queen Elizabeth were quite different from this one. For one thing, you might find yourself keeping company with a whole host of strange figures. Manacled alongside you might be a prigger, that's a horse thief. An Abram man who pretends to be fresh out of bedlam and in need of charity. An angler who sneaks around the streets at night with a pole with a hook on the end, thrusting it into windows to snatch up people's property. Shackled to such a motley crew, you might welcome your day in court, even if the punishment you face would be, at best, a branding or mutilation, and, at worst, the gallows. Succession set in the last days of Elizabeth I's reign. The plot involves Ned, a servant of the Revels' office and spy, tasked with discovering and foiling a plot to bar King James's accession. Both he and the plotters, a band of English nationalists stirred up by a corrupt MP, are on the trail of a mysterious secret document containing a dark secret from the King's past. In the pages of the novel, 
Readers will, I hope, enjoy their glimpses of Ned's theatrical friends and foes, including Ben Johnson and William Shakespeare, a prickly King James who provides an audience during a visit to the Scottish court, a waning Sir Walter Raleigh, conspicuous by his famed indifference to affairs, and the rather sad figure of Arbella Stewart, another prisoner kept locked away under the care of her grandmother, Bess of Hardwick. Ned Savage's world is one of danger, dirt and desperation. Outside the great palaces and mansion houses are squalid jails and madhouses, cut purses and murderers, fleas and open sewers. It all makes Bowman of the Yard's jailhouse smell quite pleasant. If I ever do find myself pardoned, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. We will let you out soon, I promise. Uh, you can find Stephen on Twitter at Scrutiny. That's at and then Scrutin, S-C-R-U-T-I-N-I-E-Y-E, and also search for him on Instagram. Now, I've had the pleasure of reading one of his books, Coronation, and I can absolutely recommend it. So do search for him on Amazon and, like me, buy all of his books. Mm, will do. Now, before we go, do you remember George Francis Train, who was the American eccentric responsible for many of London's tramways? Yes. Well, I've been looking for some more eccentrics, and I'm glad to say the 19th century is absolutely full of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, first off, we've got William Buckland. Now, William Buckland was a geologist, a paleontologist, zoologist, priest, and a lecturer. All right. He's most famous for eating animals, lots of different animals. <laughs> uh, he ate mice, moles, crocodiles, and crickets. Um, he once heard a leopard had died at the zoo and determined to taste it had the animal exhumed. Oh, right. His appetite wasn't limited to animals. And once, whilst observing the heart of a French king preserved in a silver casket, Dr. Butland exclaimed, I have eaten many strange things, but have never eaten the heart of a king before. Before anyone else could stop him, he had gobbled it up. The precious relic was lost forever. <laughs> wow, okay. Now, this sounds very much like some of the old recipes we had a few months It does, doesn't it? Heron pudding and the like. Yeah. Heart of the king, though. I'm not sure um, that would go down too well, would it? No. Que queen of hearts, jam tarts, maybe. But, uh, yeah, not this. <laughs> uh, I've also got uh, Henry Beresford, third Marquis of Waterford. Mm -hmm. Known as the Mad Marquis, Beresford is responsible for the phrase, paint the town red. This was because Beresford and his fox hunting friends arrived in Melton Mowbray in 1837 after they'd been drinking heavily. Right. When the drunkards arrived at the toll gate, the tollkeeper understandably wanted to be paid before they opened the gate. Unfortunately, the gate was undergoing work at the time with ladders and red paint lying around, which Beresford and his cronies seized and used to attack the tollkeeper. Then they proceeded to rampage through Melton Mowbray, painting doors red as they passed. Solitary policemen attempted to intervene, but were beaten up and painted red for their trouble. Oh, I see. Nice. Who knew that Melton Mowbray was quite so exciting? Oh, yes, I knew about pork pies, but not painting the town red. And uh, next on the list, we have Baron Berners, uh, generally known as Lord Berners. He showed signs of eccentricity from an early age when he threw a pet dog out of the window in an attempt to teach it to fly. Although the dog was okay, I hasten to add. Uh, Bernice made his home at the Farringdon House in Oxfordshire and transformed it into his own personal playground. Uh, he dyed the feathers of the estate's pigeons bright pink and displayed various bizarre signs around the place. His most famous notice was placed upon a tall tower in the ground and it read, Members of the public committing suicide from this tower do so at their own risk. <laughs> Very helpful. Absolutely. 
Berners would drive around wearing a pig's head mask to scare the locals, kept a pet giraffe who he invited into the drawing room for tea, and had a beer mug that played the national anthem when lifted. <laughs> Fantastic. What a lovely collection of eccentrics. I love the, the beer mug that plays the national Fabulous. anthem. Fabulous. We really should start producing uh, coffee mugs that play the Bowman of the Yard podcast when lifted, shouldn't we? Yes, maybe we could do something on Redbubble or... <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Look out, coming soon. Yes, to a store near you. Uh, if you have any uh, information about any Victorian eccentrics, do send them into podcast at bowmanofyard.co.uk, and we'll be sure to read them out next time. Time, please, gentlemen. Let's have all your glasses. There we are. Well, time has beaten us again. Do hang on for the end of this podcast because after the music stops, you will hear the final and concluding part of my short story from Bowman's casebook, The Smithfield Murder. And in the meantime, of course, don't forget to subscribe to us on whichever platform you're listening to us on and get in touch at podcast at bowmanoftheyard.co.uk or like Bowman of the Yard on Facebook. And we'll see you next time for exhibit um, H9J. Bye. See you, everybody. The Smithfield Murder, a short story from Bowman's Casebook by Richard James, Part 9. Their investigations at an end, Sergeant Graves and Inspector Bowman confront Boothby and the stallholders at Smithfield Market. The Empire might well span half the globe, mused Arthur Boothby, as he stood at the top of the steps leading to his office, but he could give it a run for its money. Looking below him, he felt a sense of pride at his dominion. Counters groaned with meat in anticipation of the day's trade. Butchers stood poised for the sale. Cuts of every size hung from every wall. To his right, livestock awaited their fate, their nostrils steaming in anticipation. Shepherds and farmers gathered in knots to talk. And over it all, Arthur Boothby held sway. Walking down the steps to the main gates, Boothby let his eyes wander from stall to stall. Few traders met his eye. Some even looked away as he passed. No matter. If they wanted a stall at Smithfield, they'd have to lump him. He chuckled to himself, his mean mouth stretching into something resembling a smile. The Scotland Yarders had disappeared as fast as they had come. Boothby fancied the bowman fellow had given it up as a bad job. With Hibbert out the way, all was clear. In a little less than ten years, he would leave the market and buy a small holding near the sea back in the old country. Morecambe Bay had always been a favourite, and he fancied he might live out his final days in comfort, staring at the sea from his modest house. Now he must be certain that O'Sheehy and his gang would be true to their word. Perhaps Hibbert might prove an example to them. Pulling a chain of keys from his pocket, Boothby put a hand to the gates to steady himself. It was going to be a busy day. Let's leave those shut, shall we? Feeling a hand at his shoulder, Boothby turned to find himself face to face with Sergeant Graves. Inspector Bowman wants a word. The sergeant stepped aside to reveal the inspector standing some way off. Beside him stood O'Sheehy and his lad, Griffiths, Prentice, Adams, Wallace and Samuelson. The market sealed, Boothby. No one's coming or going. Bowman had his hands in his pockets, his coat pulled tight around him. The game's up, Arthur. O'Sheehy's Irish drawl was thick with defeat. 
The seven men behind the inspector looked downcast, their shoulders slumped in dejection. They've as good as confessed, Boothby, Bowman called. Boothby sensed he was trapped. With his back to the gates, he had nowhere to run. Confess to what? he hissed. Bowman took a step forward, the lamps on the wall behind him lengthening his shadow across the floor. To being accessories to the murder of Solomon Hibbert. Looking about him, Boothby could see a crowd was gathering. Traders were leaving their stalls to watch the proceedings. Then take them away and lock them up. Graves was smiling at him now. He said accessories to murder. There's another who took the lead. Then catch him, string him up. They might yet do that, Arthur. O'Shea was holding up a conciliatory hand. Give it up, man. Boothby appealed to the detectives. But I was at the bishop's finger all that night. The men'll tell you that. At the mention of the public house, Bowman stood aside to admit another. A young woman took his place, blinking into the cold morning air. The crowd exchanged nudges. Graves' eyes grew wide. Swathed in a coat and scarf, Lily looked all the more voluptuous. By rights, she should be warm in her bed, she thought, but this inspector chap was quite the persistent sort. Lily, Bowman was saying, do you know these men? Lily looked around at the ramshackle group. Know em? I spend half me time trying to avoid em. The spectators laughed at this. Lily, enjoying her audience, gifted them a smile. Could you tell me, Bowman continued, which of these men were at the bishop's finger the night before last? Lily looked around and raised an arm to point at each man in the group. As her accusing finger damned them in turn, they each looked to the ground. Bowman raised an eyebrow in mock inquiry. But not Mr. Boothby. Lily shook her head. No, not him, not that night. Bowman stood stock still. Your story was a lie, was it not, Mr. Boothby? Bowman was circling him now. Cooked up to cover your absence. It was unfortunate that none of your gang had the wit to find their own words. To what end? Boothby demanded, his arms wide. Why would I want Hibbert dead? Bowman turned his head to his companion. Graves? I took a little ride this morning, Mr. Boothby. Or rather, I was taken. What is this? Boothby jeered. The inspector and I were party to some unusual activity last night, Graves continued, right here at Smithfield Market. While your traders took their deliveries in the small hours of the morning, we found a Mr. Harry Absalom plying his trade. Boothby blanched at the name. I jumped his cart. As you bid him have a safe journey, I lay under a sheet, just four feet from you. Grave smiled again. Boothby's eyes darted left and right, thinking through the repercussions of the sergeant's words. We know your deal with Absalom. Bowman was face to face with Boothby now. And so did Hibbert. Didn't he? Mr. Boothby. Boothby remained tight-lipped. Hibbert wasn't happy, O'Shea interjected. We all knew that. The inspector tells me he stopped paying rent in protest, but you covered it up, so we wouldn't know. Fists clenched before him. It was clear O'Shee was itching for a fight. He threatened to expose us, roared Boothby, cornered. What would you have me do? You paid him hush money. O'Shee was flexing his hands. Our money. The traders around them had started to protest and jeer. We knew there was something crooked going on, declared one. We wanted no part of it, proclaimed another. 
Bowman understood. Stanley Kelly, he called. A young man stepped forward, his face a mask of defiance. Bowman clapped a hand upon his shoulder. This is Stanley Kelly, an upright man if ever there was one, and I should imagine there are many more such men here. Shouts of agreement rang out. You have debased our trade. Kelly's lip was quivering with emotion. It's only horse meat. Boothby threw back his head and roared. It's good enough for the Frenchies. Good enough for the Savoy, would you say? Bowman's moustache twitched. That meat is culled under such conditions as to be unsafe. It is not fit for consumption. That alone would be enough to see you lose your licence. Voices rang out to punctuate the morning air. Take it off him, called one. As low as he was, continued Bowman, the crowd at his back. Hibbert would not see his trade perverted. But soon you lost your patience. Concocting a story to protect yourself, you sent your men to the bishop's finger while you lay in wait. Alice Hibbert told me of your weekly meetings, after which her husband would return with fists full of notes. Our money! snorted Oshihi, his feet scuffing the ground. Two nights ago, Hibbert left for his meeting, but he was never to return. The crowd was silent now. They may have shared no love for Hibbert, but none amongst them would have seen him harmed. You set about him, did you not? Bowman looked around at the butcher's stalls. Each had the instruments of trade hung from hooks. It is not hard to see where you might have found your weapons. He put up a fight, for sure. Boothby relented. His shoulders slumped. And then Oshihi and the others returned from the inn to help you carry him here. Bowman was toe-to-toe -to -toe with him again. Only you had the keys to the gate. Bowman held out a hand. Boothby hesitated before handing over the keys. The inspector's hand closed around them. Your men stuck him on a hook, he continued, as a warning to others to hold their tongue. It took four men to get him down. I dare say it would have taken double to get him up, slippery with blood as he was. There were murmurings amongst the crowd. He deserves to hang, said Kelly, his eyes ablaze. They all do. Boothby looked about him, suddenly exposed. He would never go down at the hands of a baying mob. His eyes fell on Oshihi. The Irishman had broken ranks. Whatever he had told the inspector, it had been too much. Boothby felt his blood rising and the prospect of a comfortable retirement in Morecambe Bay slipping away. With a roar, he charged at the man, barrelling into him at speed. Caught off guard, Oshihi fell to the floor with a thud, his head cracking hard against the stone. At a signal from Bowman, Graves took a whistle from his pocket and blew. There was an immediate stillness in the market. Even Boothby let his quarry go in surprise. Oshihi took the advantage of the moment to punch his assailant square in the jaw. Approaching footsteps could be heard from around the corner near the market entrance. They were running. Bowman sprung to the gate, deftly turning the key in the lock to admit half a dozen constables in uniform and Detective Inspector Ignatius Hicks. As the constables ran to apprehend the gang under Graves' direction, Hicks approached Bowman with a swagger. Well done, Inspector Bowman, he breathed. Bowman was careful to show no emotion. Of course, I would have had this all wrapped up if you had called upon me sooner. Indeed, agreed Bowman, deadpan. But I did not think it wise to disturb you at your breakfast. As the constables rounded up their charges, Bowman turned to Stanley Kelly and met his eye. Mr Kelly, 
he called across the concourse. Get this market open, and you may proceed with your trade. With that, he threw him the key and turned away, the faintest of smiles playing on his lips.